Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Brent McCain. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, episode 491, from October 15th, 2022. Welcome back. And we're uh, nine Dave? episodes away from episode 500. Right. It's getting close. It'll be before the end of the year. Uh, yeah. That's kind of Christmas-ish. Uh, I don't remember the exact date. So uh, today we talked to one of my good friends from uh, seminary days, uh, Terry Ellis, and he has written a book. Um, it's reasonably happy. I knew I would get it. Um, and uh, it's a book about uh, the uh, Serenity Prayer, where it kind of goes line by line through the Serenity Prayer and uh, gives an explanation about what it stands for. So, um, really good conversation that we had uh, a few months ago, and I'm looking forward to uh, listening back at it uh, along with you. I listen to all these podcasts. Turns out I love to hear myself talk. <laughs> <laughs> but it's nice to be able to sit down with somebody you've got a personal connection to, you know. Yeah, it's like the the <clears throat> the episode we did with Scott. I mean, uh, Scott Boatwright, because he's my old office mate, and we've known each other since '89. And Wesley uh, Harris, we've yeah, Wesley Harris, really. he went to school with you. Yeah, so I mean, we knew knew these people from Ruston from we were either we were kids or we were students together, you know, in grad school or whatever, seminary or whatever. Right. So uh, I know. I thought I was so grown up when I was in the seminary, and I'm. I look back now, and I, well, that guy was a kid, you know. <laughs> um, so uh, we'll be looking forward to talking to Terry in a few minutes. But first, this week in Louisiana history. So this week in Louisiana history, this is part of the run-up to the transfer uh, to the United States. Uh, October the 5th, 1802, the Spanish King Charles the Fourth orders the retrocession of Louisiana from Spain to France. Of course, that's that last little period there where... France gets the territory back and eventually sells it all to the United States. Right. And now for this week in New Orleans, you see, Nicholas Ignace, Ignatius, maybe, the Boubois, October 15, 1689 to January 13, 1770, was a French Jesuit priest and missionary who joined the Canadian mission in Quebec in 1719. Um, and then he eventually made his way down south and did a lot of um, you know, good works as part of the ministry. He arranged to have the Earthline nuns founded, uh, establish a girls' school, um, helped to uh, arrange their funding. And as we've learned... Uh, their funding came from, uh, they were given a, a plot of land to be a, a plantation, and then they worked on it, they were So, you know, you start looking closely at how things were funded in South Louisiana back in the day. It was all by slavery, you know? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it says our friend Lamar White said Louisiana was a giant labor camp. Yeah, yeah, it was. So everything's funded by, you know, forced labor. Now, for this week in Louisiana... 
also this week in Louisiana, we highlight the Palmetto Island State Park at Abbeville. Uh, this is at 19501 Pleasant Drive in Abbeville. Walk on the wild side at Palmetto Island State Park. Observe wildlife or fish from the pier over the Vermilion River at Palmetto Island State Park. Uh, the park's very name hints at the untamed wildness you can expect in this southern corner of the state. Palmettos, those shaggy tropical trees found all over the swamp, grow alongside tall cypress and other Louisiana native plants, giving the park an air of authenticity. This is as unspoiled as South Louisiana gets. The Vermilion River runs through the Palmetto Island State Park, and it's the most scenic way of reaching that river is via a boat launch near the center of the park, which also offers canoeists and kayakers easy access to narrow channels and tucked away lagoons. Canoes are available for rent by the hour or the day. Uh, though the waterways here are the main attraction, the seven-tenths of a mile-long Cypress Trail also allows visitors a close-up look at the park's jungle-like ecology. At the nearby visitor center, you'll find a water playground and a bathhouse, as well as six cabins that give overnight guests a front-row seat for the symphony of native animal calls emerging from the swamps. Outside the park, you'll find even more opportunities to dive into Cajun culture. The town of Abbeville is home to the Sam Garino Blacksmith Shop Museum, or you can check out the Acadian Museum, Museum in Erath. Over in Avery Island, you'll find the Tabasco Factory, which, of course, we profiled last week. Uh, museum and Country Store is also there. Entrance fee is $3 per person. It is free for seniors age 62 and older, and children age 3 and under also get in for free. Do you have a website for that? Uh, yeah, I think there is. It'll be in the show notes. Now, for this week's Tooth Card from Louisiana, I listened to a cover of the Stevie Nicks song, Listen to the Rain, uh, and it's on Mardi Gras Day. All right, see, I, I took care of you, I took care of you. All right, all right, yo, Stevie Nicks it is, Stevie Nicks. Man, I thought, did I sing Stevie Nicks? <laughs> yo, see, I wasn't here. <laughs> Stevie Nicks it is, you got it.
Bruce McGee, and I'm here today with Terry Ellis. Welcome, Terry. Hey, Bruce. Good to be with you. And uh, full disclosure, uh, Terry and I have been friends for, what, 39 years? Uh, uh, Yeah, I was going to say 40, just to round it off. It's almost 40, man. We might have known each other in 82. I don't know. No, yeah. I came to seminary in 1980. You were maybe a year ahead. No, it was so. the same year. I don't. Okay. Like, we we had to be there taking classes together. But we really got to know each other during doctoral work. Right, right. We were you, me, and Benny Crockett were like a triumvirate. Yeah, uh, the Greek guys. Yeah. <laughs> the Greek guys. That's it. So uh, you are on today to talk about your new book, Reasonably Happy, and uh, congratulations on uh, getting a book out and. Also, uh, congratulations on reading the whole Serenity Prayer. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's about like knowing the whole uh, Star Spangled Banner. People don't know that there is a long version of the Serenity Prayer, you know. That's it. And I didn't either. Uh, Yeah, I'll tell you that story later, but I didn't know anything about it. Well, I knew the first four lines just from general culture. And for full disclosure, this is a recovery episode, and neither... Terry nor I are the gurus or the uh, the uh, shamans of AA. We don't speak for AA. We're just talking about our own experience. Right, right. Um, yeah, and that's where I ran across, like you said, the first three lines of the Serenity Prayer. But then, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a number of lines more that are really meaningful to me. Oh, yes. So um, tell us how you came to decide to write a book. And this is a nice, it's a balance, like... Um, Hardback. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 240. 253, something like that. 250 pages or so. Right, right. So it's very, uh, very substantial. Um, So how did you come to decide, okay, I want to write a book? 
Well, the, I tell you the way I came across the prayer, and it really was the genesis of the book. It was when I was in treatment for alcoholism right. nine years ago. I'd right. gone to treatment, and I had a, and I write about it in the book that I'd had a just a really. It wasn't a bad day in treatment because I, I just don't believe there are bad days in treatment. I think there are days which are more challenging that can end up becoming really good days, and so it was a challenging day, and I just felt. Um, I'd had a bad phone call home, and I mm. didn't know if I was going to, you know, I didn't know what my future was going to be in a lot of particulars. So I was really nervous and, and angry and fearful and all that. And I remember my therapist at the time, Dr. Mazzanti, she said, um, Tara, I'm going to let you have some time by yourself. Let me step out for a little while. So she left me in her office by, by myself. And I was just pacing Bruce like a cage lion. Right. It felt uh, awful. And that sounds I came, real familiar. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and I, I came across this framed prayer on her wall, which was the long version of the Serenity Prayer. And I read it for the first time I'd ever seen a long version of the Serenity Prayer. And it just was like somebody put a warm blanket around my shoulders. I wrote it down in my in the, my, my big book, the Alcoholics Anonymous book, and it right over there on the shelf. And I, I committed it to memory and, uh, and prayed it every day for years. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then... And, and then that, that became the genesis for, I'm going to write a book about this someday. Would you like to read the whole prayer for I think that's a great uh, idea. And let yeah. me read it from the big book. Okay, good. And your original big book. I know, I, this is the one that I had in You never loaned that out, brother. No, uh, no, I don't. And this is where I wrote it down. It's right on the second uh, flyleaf page. I buy um, extra copies to give to newcomers. I don't give That's them my big book. <laughs> no, no, I would never do that either. But I've heard of people like that who just have new ones to, to give to people. That's a great idea. Well, one of my earliest memories, uh, this is a church memory. My mom was, a, my dad was a preacher, my mom a preacher's wife, and I was six, and my sister was two, and one of our church members had a baby. And so mother took a little white New Testament to give to uh, Jim, the, you know, the baby, and that left an impression on me. And just all my, uh, when I was in the ministry, I, I liked the Gideons. I liked the idea of, you know, giving away copies of the Bible free. And so when I got into AA, um, I kind of st- you know, started doing that. Okay, everybody that comes in at least needs a big book. Yeah. And uh, I yeah. try to make sure that I hook them up. Sometimes they have the $10 to pay. Uh, most of the time, I have to pay for it. And yeah. Then give yeah. it to them, yeah. Well, hopefully it uh, it doesn't come back void. <laughs> you never know, you know. like oh, you don't. You, you lay groundwork and maybe five, ten years later, uh, they might, or somebody else gets it. So. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So anyway, the serenity prayer. Yeah, this is the long version of the serenity prayer written right off the, the hanging on the wall in Dr. Mazzanti's office after I had a bad day in treatment. It reads, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, wisdom to know the difference, taking one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, accepting hardships as a pathway to peace, Taking, as Jesus did, the sinful world as it is, not as I would have it. Trusting you that all things will be made right if I surrender to your will, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. And it's not only powerful in its own right, 
But it's not a bad summary of what AA teaches, especially the, you know, the first few lines I'm very familiar with, but the rest of it you don't hear as much. But it's very much in line with the 12 steps and, um, you know, applying these principles to your life, you know. And that was the appeal that uh, came to mind back, was it 1951, when somebody sent the serenity prayer, the three-line serenity prayer, to to the office of New York. Not as, uh, you know, hey, this is the AA prayer now, or, and certainly AA didn't write it, but it just resonated with somebody in recovery. Reinhold Niebuhr? Reinhold Niebuhr wrote the first three lines, and, and it's based, and he will say, he, he would say that it was not all original to him. There were right. ideas, there, you know, there's some stoic ideas in there. Oh my gosh, Thousands yes. of years, right? right. But he did write down the version that is most commonly used in 20th century America up to present. But Bruce, the rest of it, um, I didn't do a lot of research uh, on it, where it came from, because the guys that had done a lot of research on it said, we don't know. <laughs> so it's kind of it's like it's been crowdsourced over right, the years. Right, we, they don't yeah. know. But uh, yeah, it's come down to us in this version now, but I can't really tell you where it came from or who authored the rest of it. It wasn't Reinhold Niebuhr. Okay, so he did the short version, but then people kept that. Well, maybe that's why it, fits so well with AA yeah, it's almost kind of a, people wrote it. It's maybe, maybe that's it. And, and maybe it's a kind of an apostle's creed, you know, where they everybody added a line to it. But I, that's one thing that attracted me to the prayer over the years. There are some deeply practical ideas in it for, mm-hmm. that anybody can access. There's some really profound theology in it, too, that I felt, and this was part of what uh, one reason I wrote the book, I remember being in AA early and seeing even people that didn't have all the spiritual thing figured out, not that, I, not that you and I do, but they didn't know, they certainly didn't have an orthodox faith. But when it came time to say the serenity prayer, there was something that bowed their appeal to them. And they would mm-hmm. reverently bow their heads and say the prayer. And I thought, you know, I, I have the training, I have the background. I'm going to write a book about it, and part of the dedication of the book is to the people like that that we see in the rooms. Where if you want to know what it means, well, this from a from a pretty orthodox Christian position, and as it is a Christian prayer, or it comes from Christian soil, here's what it means. Here's what theology means. I enjoy and that. why, this is hopefully a not too hard a question, why can't we be supremely happy in this life? Yeah, I know, I know. Because, of course, uh, that's one reason we drink. You know? Yes! We can't. We couldn't, we couldn't live on cloud nine all the time and all the disappointments and resentments and fears and it, you know, piles up and we don't like the way we feel so we end up drinking over it. The prayer introduced to me the idea of you're not going to make cloud nine maybe ever in this life. Well, cloud I, four is a pretty good place. I have learned that cloud nine is a real dangerous place for Bruce. I, um, I know what would make me happy and... Uh, like Christmas, the day after Christmas, I'm in um, Natchitoches for the Christmas lights. Yeah. And I wanted to take some, I did the tourist thing, but I went back out later, like 10 o'clock after the cars are thinning out. And I'm going to, uh, you know, take some pictures to put on the website. And uh, I've got my tripod and all that, I'm just kind of making my way down the street. And uh, these three attractive women call to me from across the street. And uh, they come over, and uh, I take pictures of them. One of them has a birthday, and um, so they want to get some pictures of them dressed up in Natchitoches, and I take them. And then they invite me back to their hotel room to party. 
And that would make me supremely happy, Terry. <laughs> what a price, right? <laughs> well, you know, Aquinas said there are four great substitutes for God. Power, pleasure, wealth, and fame. So I don't know that that would really give you the the, right. the, beati- the beatific vision you expected. Well, and that's that gets us to the that. That we may be reasonably happy. And what kind of that is that? You remember Carlton Winberry's syntax class and talking about the result clause versus the purpose clause. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I set out to make myself happy, you know, my purpose in doing X, Y, and Z, so Bruce can be happy, it's going to blow up. Yeah. Uh, so it has to be a byproduct. And when I, I looked at the 12 steps, step one admitted I was powerless over alcohol, that my life had become romantic. That doesn't make me happy. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore my sanity. Well, I just got out of the Baptist church, and I don't want to get in another cult. This isn't making me happy. Step three, turn my will and my life over the care of God, and made a decision. Turn my will and my life over the care of God as I understand him. The way I grew up with turning my life over to the you know, God's will meant I was probably going to be arrested for sneaking Bibles into North Korea, you know. <laughs> God's will is, you know, quite a scary thing. So none of those looked like they were going to make me happy. And, you know, it's say, you know, don't do it to make you happy. Do you want to stay alive? <laughs> well, you know, I do a little bit of uh, the history of happiness and the ancient history of happiness. Oh, Aristotle wow. wrote more about happiness than anybody in history until the modern period, until the you know, later 20th century. All the different types had, of happiness. Well, and he connected it all to living a virtuous life. Uh, right. So there was nothing about it that would say, oh, this is wonderful. In fact, he said, you can't tell you're happy until the end of life. Yes. Which is, you know, a little, a little discouraging maybe. That we Call can't. no man happy until he's dead. Until he's dead. <laughs> so, yeah, Aristotle uh, connected it all to a virtuous life, which is not where most people today would connect happiness. Right. But it's a very valuable concept. And what makes me happy? Doing the next right thing, mm-hmm. which is a AA thing. Mm-hmm. I never heard that in church, but you hear it every time, you know, almost every meeting. In and AA. also, you know, one of the keys to staying sober, to avoiding relapse is helping somebody else. Right, right. And there is nothing that gives me a better sense, a kind of a warm feeling, than feeling like I was able to help somebody that day. Yes. So, you know, that, is that happiness? I would say, yeah, very definitely. It doesn't have anything to do with whether my car starts or I pay the mortgage or my (laughs) team won. It's just living the the person's life. Yeah, so... um... Here's the difference between the two that's. I'm sitting around Saturday afternoon about five. Uh, what do I want to do to make me happy? I, well, there's some bonanza coming on TV. I think I'll watch it tonight and skip my meeting. And about that time, the phone rings. and It's my sponsor, and he needs a ride to the, the meeting. And I'm like, not now. I'm watching TV. But you can't say that to your sponsor or they'll look <laughs> at you funny. So I say, okay, I'll pick you up. And, uh, you know, by the time I get home, you know, a few hours later, I'm feeling really happy. And it's because I did the right thing, even if not for the right reason. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the opening chapter of the book is about being reasonably happy. I start with, uh, the first chapter is about the last (laughs) phrase in the prayer because that's what's catchy. 
people read it and say, reasonably happy. And I used to tell people, people say, how you doing? And I would go, well, I'm reasonably happy. And You've go, texted hey. that to me before. Have I? Yes. Well, it was, it was before I was marketing the book, I'm sure. Yeah, anyway, it was. It was just a catchy phrase. Mm-hmm. And so, and people are so interested in wanting to be happy. And so I wanted to say, okay, that's what you're interested in. Let's go ahead and start with that and talk about what real happiness is. And then in the rest of the book, I delve into some of the deeper ideas that can deliver us to a reasonably happy life. And there are some really challenging ideas in that prayer. And it's that first chapter where you bring out the idea that virtue makes us happy. Exactly. I, you know, I, 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 I kind of charted, you know, just real three quick points of Aristotle, uh, Augustine, and uh, Aquinas. And what they had to say about living the good life, and of course, you know, Augustine not introduced the idea, but you find it different from Aristotle. He's saying, look, it, it's going to be found in God. You've right. got to have a belief in God. You've got to you know, follow God in a particular way. And then Aquinas introduced even a more kind of a dual agency type thing, where if you cooperate with God, that's what really delivers well, you into a happy life. For our listeners that may not be familiar with Aquinas, he combined. Jerusalem and Athens, you know, was it Tertullian said, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? And, you know, what does Christianity have to do with philosophy? And so he took virtues from philosophy and then virtues from Christianity, faith, hope, and love. Uh, What were the four... Uh, oh, the, the classic virtues. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, justice, prudence, temperance, and fortitude. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, along and then yeah, right. The three theological. I remembered virtues. it on the way home. <laughs> I just we're at that age where we, it may take us a little while to access that that drive that part of the drive. That's it. But yeah, he uh, he combines the two uh, into like you know his idea of virtue theory. Um, we'll have to check it. I believe it was Irenaeus who said that. What does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? I may be wrong. Tertullian? We'll check that out later. We should. But it was the idea that, you know, you don't need philosophy. You don't need this kind of uh, uh, contempt, well, not contempt, but, but the philosophical language and all. And yeah, Aquinas, he loved Aristotle. Uh, Augustine was more a Platonist. Yeah, Aquinas though he just referred to uh, Aristotle as the philosopher. Yeah, the master. You know, and that was, you know, the problem with Aristotle was always seeing him as the final answer. He he gave the first you know, first Mm -hmm. speculation about stuff. Like he, as far as I'm concerned, he invented science because he categorizes like he's got a book on physics, he's got a book on the psyche, he's got a book on metaphysics, rhetoric. Uh, poetics and they're your subjects and you just start going deeper and deeper into each one but he didn't give the final answer you know like his physics is way out of date (laughs) yeah yeah right yeah exactly exactly okay we're gonna find out check it out uh his the reading mother (laughs) oh tertullian you got tertullian Point of, point of the reading mother says it's Tertullian. That doesn't mean it's right. I, no, no, I believe that. I, I, I couldn't remember. Because uh, the internet is combined the East and West. And that. So anyway. Well, Tertullian uh, was a cranky old guy. He, um, he, um, he's the one that said uh, your clothes should either be white, brown, you know, natural tones only if 
God had meant us to wear blue clothes, he would have created blue sheep. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, a lot of the saints uh, were kind of irascible fellows. Yeah. They really were difficult people, you know, so, yeah. So, um, talk about the rest of the books. Um, what uh, What are some of the uh, yeah. themes you develop as well, you go along? I, you know, people ask, what's the book about? Is it a book about alcoholism? No, it's not. It's uh, I do weave my story in there, but mm-hmm. my story of my... You know, I, I didn't drink until I was 53. And yeah, so, you want to tell your story a little bit of it? Well, yeah, as, as background, I, just, I was raised Baptist as well, and I just I never was interested in drinking or using drugs. And I, literally, that's the best way to describe it. My peer group wouldn't use it. Uh, I didn't like the way it tasted. I did taste it when I was a, a kid. And it just tasted bad, and I thought, well, it's bad for you. And I just, you know. Well, and we're Baptists, which still and, were yeah, pretty. And I was Baptist in Lexington, Kentucky. So we did not have it in the the social fabric like we do down in South Louisiana or in the South, maybe. So well, in it, North Louisiana, my dad, you know, you're my dad. Yeah, you know, yeah, was a great man. Uh, he um, single-handedly, well, not by himself, but he organized like the only time he ever got involved in politics with the church was to organize the church to keep Ruston and Lincoln Parish dry. Yeah. Uh, and I remember going door to door with my best friend's dad. Uh, I felt like a Jehovah's Witness or something, and uh, vote against the uh, alcohol, you know, demon rum. So <laughs> we kept North Louisiana is still pretty, you know, Baptist and. Uh, Lots of it's still pretty dry. Oh, yeah. For sure. But, Bruce, I was raised... The the Ellis family was not mad about alcohol. It just was not an issue. We just didn't drink. So it was never a temptation. It was never around me, and it just never really proved to be a temptation until about half a century into my life. I had some things pile up in my life. I had a brother that was murdered. And at age 53, I can remember saying, I just need something to make me relax a little bit, something to help me go to sleep. And for the first time, I took a, 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 I drank enough alcohol to get the effect of it. And after it was, you told me that, I started thinking. I'd never thought about that before, but it was maybe three or four years after my dad's suicide that I wound up in AA. Um, it really took some a, a trauma like that. I was probably a functioning addict. You know, my thing is more pills. and uh, uh, But I was functioning. I was getting by. And, and after that, it just seemed like everything came unstapled. Um, Bruce, it was a... I was in treatment. I was in treatment for nearly a month. I, I, I stayed in treatment for 90 days. So I, was, I needed every bit of it. I was in treatment nearly for a month before I brought up Ken's murder. My right. murder. It's so buried. And, well, it was buried and I just wasn't... Uh, and that that had just happened. Well, t- let me finish the story. So my counselor said, "Wait, wait, did, your brother was murdered." I said, "Yeah, Kim was murdered." He said, "Is that the first time we're hearing about this? We've already covered quite a bit of ground, you know, over the first three or four weeks." And the small group that I was in, you know, six or eight other people, were going, "We hadn't heard of that." I go, well, "Yeah, he was murdered." So he, he begins processing that with me. My counselor right. does, and he says, he finally comes up to me. He says, "Terry, when did you start drinking?" I said, "Well, it was." Let's see, it was uh, April of 2011. And he goes, when was Ken murdered? And I said, March 2011. Oh, wow. And that was, and, and it was really... And yeah, I, that, the I nickel that, dropped. It was unbelievable <laughs> to think that, and you can't draw it 
you can never draw a straight A to B line where this event led you to become an alcoholic. But it was kind of like that was the final straw, and I just well, and, and I didn't grieve him. I didn't, uh, you know, I just took care of things like we do as ministers. Yeah, you, know? you take the so, next step to it, 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 okay, it was, we got to choose a casket. It was a, a soul wound that I had not acknowledged. Right, and alcohol helped me not feel it. Helped me go to sleep, and you know, then it then it helped me with problems, and it helped me, you know, with more problems, and it was just problems. Well, and that's a very good point because if your problem is alcohol or drugs, or whatever. Solution's simple, just stop doing it. But what if alcohol's the answer? Mm -hmm. And then when you try to stop, things get worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I I do, and maybe we'll talk about it later in the show, my my work now, I have a company called Crystalist Interventions. I go all over the country and do interventions and try to help families know how to talk to their loved ones about coming in to a treatment center, and then I'd take them to treatment center. I was just in West Palm Beach, Florida yesterday. But uh, I try to help the families understand. I try to help these guys newly in, guys and gals newly in recovery, understand what you're feeling right now is fear of how you're going to face life without drugs and alcohol. Yes, yes. The fear of running out. Um, just, uh, with the fear, Yeah, the fear of, uh, you mean I will never have that to, to rely on. I'll never have that to... So this is Chapit, which I like a lot better than Chapstick. And as far as I can tell, they've gone out of business. And when I found out that my Chapit was not, I wasn't going to be able to get, I had that exact same feeling that, oh my God, I'm running out. We, do, we do tend to, to <laughs> take that kind of impression to other areas of our lives. Oh right? my gosh, yeah. But yeah, it's just that. You know, and, and here, you know, God is saying, Terry, I'll take care of that for you. I'll take care of your grief for your brother or your anger or your, your aggravation about churches. Churches are churches. And they're, they're, I love churches. I'm a church guy. But they can be, as a pastor, they can be a real pain. They can well, be very difficult. But a, he, God will do for me what the drug and alcohol could never do. And God will do it without a hangover or the other physical problems. I wanted to pause for a commercial break. Tell us the name of the book and the name of your uh, 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 intervention program and where people can find it. Okay, uh, the book is, again, Reasonably Happy, and it's about how to stop fighting life. And you can find information about it at uh, www.reasonablyhappy.org. Read reviews and um, Are you on Amazon and local bookstores? It's on Amazon as well, yeah, just Reasonably Happy. you'll, You'll be able to find it. And the work I do is with Chrysalis Interventions, a company that I founded, and you can find information about that at uh, chrysalisinterventions.com. So we might need a spelling on chrysalis. C-H-R-Y-S-A-L-I-S. <laughs> chrysalis Interventions, with an S, dot com. Great. So um, back to that then. I, I wanted, when you said chrysalis, it reminded me, and I wanted to give you a chance to get, get the word out, because you know, hopefully people that are listening to this, uh, some of them will either be having problems themselves or have families. That's it. They're, you know, family members. Right. I don't get calls from the addict or alcoholic. I get calls from the husband and wife and mother and father and sister and brother who are saying, we're about to lose somebody. What do we do? Can, Can anything be done? And yeah, something can be done where there's a particular way we can organize the love and concern combined with a reasonable plan and go as a group to that person, talk to them. 85% of them will go to treatment. And this is not something you should 
do yourself without somebody helping you with it. Um, um, because family members are hurt, they're angry, these things can spiral out of control if you've just watched the TV show. So definitely call uh, or t- email uh, to get yeah, somebody. Yeah, please do. And, and a lot of times, uh, at least call and talk with me and kind of get some pointers. Some families do this on their, on their own. They don't have to you know, engage my services. But it's good to have uh, somebody to kind of bounce some things off of because... Your loved one that uses drugs and alcohol, your addict or alcoholic, they know how to push your buttons. Right. And I'm there and they don't, I don't have that wiring. And so, and they're usually a little bit more respected when there's a stranger in the room. And when they find out that the stranger's a minister, they tend to settle oh, down. That helps. Gentle down a little bit, you know, so they're more Do you respected. wear your suit and tie when you do it? <laughs> no, I thought about putting a collar on. Sometimes it's a little overpowering, so I don't do that. No, it's the key for me, Bruce, is... And I only, very, very rarely do I ever have a raised voice right? in, a, in, a, uh, in an intervention. And I'm serious. Now, there are times when the, the, the patient has walked out, and I've got to walk down the street with them and just kind of <laughs> just, just let them cool off a little bit and then say, all right, now, what are we going to do here? Let's, just, let's be reasonable. Let's go back in here and talk. Nothing bad is going to happen. So I like to I like the idea of just, we're gonna keep this peaceful and we're just gonna talk. And I have tried to talk people into recovery who didn't want it and had no luck. So the fact that you have a system that works eighty five percent of the time doesn't mean they always will stay sober when oh, they get well, out. No, but, no, no. But about sixty percent of them do. Yeah. they've just got a whole lot better chance if they get in treatment. Some of our best members in Ruston went to the Ravel. They have a good success rate. So I was in uh, Palmetto in Ravel, Louisiana for ninety mm-hmm. days, ninety three days actually. Yeah. Yeah. I loved it. And and you know what what you do in intervention, Bruce, is you I, I just try to harness the inherent strength of the family. They don't realize how much strength they have. Right. And the alcoholic has been a kind of fracturing presence where everybody's angry and there's all these negative spiritual emotions around where you can't do much of anything <laughs> with that. But then if you go and nobody's angry and everybody individually just expresses love, concern, mm-hmm. and you've got a reasonable plan to help you, there's a very strong psychological element at work there, and I believe a very strong spiritual element that yeah. just pr- produces an environment in which somebody becomes willing. Nobody wants to go to treatment, <laughs> but can they? We change the question. What would it take to make them willing to go? You know, and that's it, love. That's influence and, and some leverage. It never occurred to me. I, I was busy, you know, so. I just detoxed in AA. I felt like a dog, you know. It was, <laughs> it was not pretty. Yeah. Uh, I remember I'd just be sitting there. My head would be splitting, and I'd just be, you know, very few words actually filtered in in those early days. Uh. <laughs> when families uh, talk to me initially, I always say to them that here's the good news. I said the best program in the history of treatment of alcoholism is free and it's everywhere. It's called AA. Mm-hmm. So seriously, in ninety percent of my cases, Bruce, if somebody would go to AA, they'd get well and do what do whatever they're told. Go to you AA might and do whatever need medical told. detox, though. Absolutely, no oh, question. So, so yeah, and I was about to add that there are situations where you got to be very cautious about coming off drugs and alcohol. So see a doctor, see somebody who's familiar with addiction uh, uh, recovery. 
And if you need a medical detox, get that. Right. But it's absolutely not necessary if somebody goes to treatment center. It's just that most people are not going to start going to AA. I always refer people to, to places that that integrate AA into their treatment well, modality. There is a thing they say, people, places, and things. Like, you're going places, you're hanging out with people, you're doing things that get you higher drunk. And you've got to separate people from that for at least a period of time. And I think that's the big gift of uh, recovery uh, uh, centers. It, it is. And I say, I had the advantage, my first three months I was in a treatment center. Well, they really discouraged drinking. Like if you're a social drinker, you're not around the people that are buying not, you drinks. Or, and I wasn't a social drinker. I was a drink-in-my-bedroom guy. Yeah. So for me to come home every day from an AA meeting and be in the environment which I drank, yeah, that's going to be tougher. And But I've always had a great admiration for people like you. Did it through AA, and they just toughed it out. And, yeah, you can do it that way. We've got some really good places, though, that can help Back you. In and the also day, help was... to d- dig into the depression and the anxieties that are maybe fueling it as well. Well, and I did combine AA with traditional psychology. Like, I had counselors, at, you know, along the way. Yeah. Because AA encouraged, you know, if you read the big book, if you... I have a psychologist. Go to them. And just be honest with Maybe them. tell them the truth. Exactly. <laughs> Maybe yeah. They can yeah. So we, it's always a holistic approach that I, that I recommend. I certainly don't uh, say just go to AA if there's some serious psychological issues there. Although we both know, you get sober, a lot of stuff resolves. You know, the, the, the steps really do take care of a lot of the anxiety, the sleeplessness, the depression. Well, that's it can, kind it can of... help a lot of that. The steps are a substitute for... Alcohol, drugs, whatever your addiction is, you know, if it was the answer, we need another answer. Right. And that's yeah. the answer um, that I found. Mm. And they never make an exclusive claim we're the only way to do it. Like, I know I have people, uh, like, we've got a strong celebrate recovery uh, in our area, and a lot of people prefer that, but it's a little more churchy than I want to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I do the website for our local group. And so when people email, it comes to me. And it wasn't very long ago, lady wrote, and then I wound up talking to her on the phone. And how much, her husband, right? How much is this going to cost? And I said, it's free. You know, you, if he wants to throw a little dollar or two in the plate, that's fine, but it's not required. You know, and that really feels good to be able to say that. There, there is that uh, element of AA which is extremely attractive. We're not pushing anything. Mm-hmm. If you want to try drinking, go ahead and see how it works. If it, <laughs> right? if, if it works for you, fine, that's great. But if it doesn't, we're going to be here. So maybe you just need to do a little more experimentation, see if you can handle it on your own. Do a little more research. Exactly. So we're not trying to push it. And that's the genius of the program, or one of the geniuses of the program, is we're not pushing we're not aggressive it's just we found something that works you want to try it we can help you give this a shot so how did you um move from uh southern baptist minister to recovery uh, intervention right when i came out of treatment my church that i was at my baptist church here in town in baton rouge wanted me to come back as their pastor they paid my 
um, salary all the time I was in training. That's so that tells church. you a lot about the church. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely tells you a lot about the church. a good church. And, and they knew where I'd gone. I told the leadership. Well, you were honest me. with them. Like, didn't you pre- preach sermon and tell them? When I came up? back, yeah, but I wasn't honest with them before I went to treatment. Well, no. I mean, yeah, but, and it took, I mean, it took a member of my church coming to me, a, a retired doctor, a very good friend, and he, he came on a Tuesday morning, uh, November 6th, 2013. And he said, uh, Terry, we need to get you well. Wow. And so my he, wife had called him the night before and said, he's going to kill himself. You know, he's got to do something about that. Yeah. So Leah, Dr. Leon DeMint came. So he's starting to, to have the liver problems. and. Uh... I, you know, I was a yet alcoholic. I had not yet manifested any of that. Right. But I was well on my way and, and embracing it 100%. I didn't want to live. I just didn't want to live. Yes. I, I hated waking up in the morning. I wanted to have the Widowmaker kick in during the night. Leslie gets the insurance. I literally, that was where I was. That I was cur- your plan. Curse the dawn. Curse the dawn. I hated it. So, but when I went to treat, so anyway, Dr. Dement, uh, Leon said, uh, go with me to a doctor tomorrow and do what he says. That I choose, a doctor that I choose. And so he, he had, it was a setup. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, we went to Dr. Richard Lear and uh, Dr. Lear said, I want you to go to Palmetto uh, Addiction Recovery Center. And uh, I, I, I did, there was no fight left in me. I wasn't angry. I just knew my ministry was over. My I just didn't have any fight. There was nothing. nothing right. Wrong. So I went to treatment. Um, I embraced it after about a week or so of you know kind of getting over the shock of where I was and, and how much I needed it. Came back was a pastor for a couple of years. During that time, Bruce, I intervened on some church members. Somebody come and say my husband right. too much. Or that my nephew is taking drugs, what I was doing. I would just do interventions as a pastoral ministry. Yeah. And it just clicked and it just felt so right. And I, you know, I felt Could like you get those it. calls? I think I told you uh, my first call on that kind of situation they, the granddad got his daughter to come home for the son's fifth birthday and she was high and drunk and uh, I get there at the same time as this cop and uh, he was an old sheriff's deputy and he'd been around and I knew nothing. I was like, what, 23? Sure. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, we didn't have any training on how to handle alcohol. No. And I, I don't know if that's going on in seminaries. We could have used a class like that. Because there are 25 million people in America today, adults, in active addiction. If you don't have... You know, alcoholics, you will have alcoholics in your church. You'll also have drug addicts. You'll also have gamblers and all that. Porn, Amazon. Right. Yeah, all kinds of addictions. Right. Attachments that are Buying stuff, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And so, and I always say, the alcoholics not in the congregation on Sunday morning. They're not there. The, the family members are, though, who don't know how Unless to handle the preacher. And the preacher, yeah. This, yeah I mean, there was a hungover Baptist preacher in, in, in the pulpit for, you know, a year or so. So, yeah, it's, they're all they're We all were around. both preaching. Uh, <laughs> right. We were under states. a different spirit there for a while. Yeah. I, you know, we, uh, we don't regret the past, but that was not the best time in my life for sure. But I, I did, you know, have, after having done that a couple of times, it just felt right. It felt like I had a... a contribution to make in this arena and it was just a spiritual kind of move with the help of a, of a dear faithful friend who um you know kind of funded the initial hey you need to course. go and do this and was so there I did, training and I, somewhere you can take the yes i had uh, by that time i had already gone to um 
a, an organization that specializes in training interventionists. Mm-hmm. And I'd gone to the course and it was just, it was kind of overwhelming. And I thought, well, maybe this isn't what I needed to do. But when I resigned as a pastor and went into this full time, I started taking, I took that course again. I took, I went to that seminar, all those seminars again, and did the, the, um, the certification process, went right. another certification. And, just be, and I really devoted my time to studying this phenomenon. Now that show intervention, how close is that to what really happened? Well, my, well it, it's close in this regard. When they have the entire family there and they're going with love mm-hmm. and all that, that's good. But the only reason those interventions are on TV is something's going sideways <laughs> and it's getting ugly. And they want the drama. They yeah, they need it. the drama. It's mine, mine will never be on intervention because I work really hard at making this a very quiet, loving. I'm, I'm leading with love. Mm-hmm. But it's love that has some really strong boundaries that are being defined by the family. And so we just reason. And, you know, I, 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 there's a lot of prayer that goes into them where these people are almost always, they're angry, of course, and they're afraid. Do you have them write out the scripts? I have so the, family, I have the families write it out because so they I don't, don't want yelling. things being free flow. And right. I'm very clear about it. This is my meeting. And you, right. you don't talk unless I, I ask you to you know, reflect on something that the person said. Because that, that the alcoholic is going to try to engage you one-on-one right. and blow things up. Right. Don't bite. Because that's been their hour they, That's exactly, they wired that button and uh, they know how to to, uh, to make this go south. And, and then they get to keep drinking. So, yeah, we, we uh, have them write it out. I have them write a letter and I give them, you know, I, I train them how to do that. I've got some the, the examples and the information I send. Well, you probably you read the letter yourself before. Oh, I do. I say send it to me ahead of time. Yeah, and I, I but that they, it's it, you know the 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 pack of information I give them is is so I think well and fine tuned that they by the time they do if I and I say just do please what I tell you to do right, right. the way I tell you to do it. Mm-hmm. So they don't have any prosecution in there. They're not angry in the letter. They're not talking about your potential and all. They're just saying, here's a couple things I love about you. Here's two reasons I'm concerned about you. And I hope you'll accept the help that we offer you today. So the letters are paid, page and a half. And this can get people in who otherwise would not go. Um. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the the interesting thing, family members will tell me, 80% of family members will tell me, we know this is not going to do any good. They, they will tell, it's, it's fascinating, they're calling me to get me perhaps to lead an intervention, and they're telling me ahead of time, it's not going to help. And I say, why do you believe that? And they say, well, because I've talked to her, and granddad has talked to her, and one of the children has talked to her, and she says no all the time. I say, all right, what if we do something different? What if we get everybody together? Because you've never experienced that. She's never had that. And again, that's the different... Um, psychological, spiritual dynamic that is just very powerful. And the method outlined in the big book, um, it's usually two AA guys with one, without the family there. Um, But that's only so successful, you know, like you have to be pretty desperate to to respond to that. And I think uh, with your approach, it can reach a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't be reachable well i I think so bruce and and that's the key you know we we really try to do it in such a way 
It gives us the best possible opportunity for success. Well, this book was written, what, 80 years ago? 30, 1935, right? 1939 like was published. Right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And um, we've possibly learned a thing or two about how to you know, reach out to people who are... Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would say this. The principles are the same. The, mm-hmm. the two AA guys that go to the alcoholic are not trying to force anything. Yeah, yeah. They're saying, here's a road. Right. And that's all we're saying in intervention. intervention mm-hmm. I don't have any zip ties. I don't have any <laughs> duct tape. I got, I got love and persuasion. Uh, right. With, and this is the difference. This is what we can bring in an intervention that they don't necessarily talk about in the, uh, the big book. We, the big book talks about influence. That's what it's, that's what it's portraying. That these mm-hmm. are two guys... I, that we have sobriety, we're going to a guy that's really struggling with alcohol, and that's influential. Tell our story. About how we, yeah, we, were we, out we got out. We right. got out. That's very influential. So I always look for influence, and the family always has a lot more influence than they realize. It's just going to be hard to say no to granddad when he says, Look, I really need you to do this, sweetie, to mm-hmm. the granddaughter. Mm-hmm. That's very powerful influence. But what we have in intervention that we don't have in what you're describing in the book. With some of the families have leverage, mm-hmm. and that is, and they got to bring it. They got to bring it where you know I'm not going to stay in a marriage where I'm I'm trying to keep up well, an alcoholic or an addict. And, you, you can't keep your job. You can't you can't see the grandchildren. I mean, that, those are reasonable changes that a family has to make. Yeah, to limit yeah. the damage. And a lot of That's the leverage. stories in the big book, there has been an intervention. That's why they're in the hospital to start with. And, sure, you sure. Know, they're start, they've well, already done the part that you're doing. Exactly. And, and, and you know, the kind of professional interventions I do today are just designed to organize in a specific way these kind of intuitive things that the big book really anticipated so beautifully. Mm-hmm. And that people have been doing for a long time. Right. Let's kind of give it a little structure. Cool. Well, back to the book. Let's talk some more about... Um, oops, I wanted to look at the table of contents. Okay. Oh, here's the serenity prayer. Good. Little by little and all at once. I've heard you say that before. Uh, what does that, what yeah. does that mean? Well, that's the opening chapter, and that's the opening chapter is just my story of how I became an alcoholic, and... People would ask me after I got back, and because I led a pretty, um, uh, you know, regimented life. I was a Baptist preacher, and I liked I liked eighty percent of what it meant to be a pastor. I enjoyed being. You a were pastor. good at it. Well, thank you, but I, like, I enjoyed it. You did the pastor stuff so well. Like I remember going to see an old lady one time. And I hated visiting shut-ins. It just <laughs> I couldn't stand it. And I I just did it often enough so that. Hopefully they wouldn't get mad, but it had been too long. And I walked in and she said, well, I thought you'd died and nobody told me. Like, I'm sorry, lady. I'm just not good at... So I always admired that about you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And I did. I enjoyed that. Those kind of, I loved getting to the hospital at 5 a.m. before surgeries. I loved funerals. That sounds odd, but I loved those... What, what do we call them, the limit experiences where people are pushed yeah. to their limits. And then for me, for you to step in and say, uh, you know, here's the presence of God. You know, not necessarily have answers, but just to accompany people and to love them, to pray with them. That was really a very satisfying experience for me. So I enjoyed that kind of thing. And people would say to me after I got out, and I was very open about my, my alcoholism and my recovery, 
they would just shake. How did this happen to you? And my response was little by little and suddenly. Right. And that's actually from uh, to give full uh, uh, full disclosure. That's from uh, one of Hemingway's books, uh, hmm. "The Sun Also Rises." See, I should have known that. And one of the yeah, right, I'm surprised. <laughs> but no, I, I can't remember the names of the character. But one of the characters had been very wealthy and had gone broke. And another man is talking to him and says, how did that happen? And his response is, gradually and suddenly. Yeah. <laughs> so it was a little by little. Well, and that is the story of addiction, right? You, uh, for most it, of us, or for a lot of us. It, it progresses is. a little along. And that's what it was for me. I, uh, I drank uh, just you know, to, go back, to go to sleep, and then before I knew it, I was drinking yeah, toddy. earlier and What's earlier. What's wrong with the toddy before bed? And then I was drinking at 2 a.m. to go back to sleep. You know, so it was... Uh, and then you're coming down for lunch at 10.30 so you can get your first... Right. It was, <laughs> well, I, you know, I never drank in the morning. I, oh, okay. I tried to convince myself I couldn't be an alcoholic because I had some... Str- you know, I had a 2 a.m. cutoff. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> But I would, yeah, I'd start drinking early in the afternoon. So I was very, I was going down, I was barreling down a road there. So yeah, little by little and suddenly I was at a place where I couldn't control it. Yeah, it just all balls up and there's a crisis point. Yeah, and and the crisis point for me was, um, as I've said, it was a, a man who came to me, a church member, and came to me and said, we need to get you well. And that was prompted by my wife. Leslie had talked to me, of course, mm-hmm. and um, you know, tried and you to ignore her me. because that's what husbands I, do. Yeah, I'm fifty <laughs> some odd years old. If I want to drink, I'm going to drink. You know, people drink all the time, and I've got half a century of not drinking. There's no way I could become an alcoholic. I was convinced of it. Which, by the way, Bruce, and it's going to be instructive for the audience. I was adopted at birth. Uh-huh. All right, so I didn't know anything about my family of right. origin at all. Or whether y'all so, had the genetics. So when my counselors were asked, were probing around about that, I said, I have no idea. You this past have year, kind of an Irish look about you, my well, friend. Well, I do. Uh, <laughs> but this past year, I made connections with my family of origin. Really? With both sides. And uh, my mother's side first. Both parents have been deceased for quite a while. But... Um, my sisters, my surviving sisters on my mother's side said, Terry, alcoholism is all through our family. Right. My mother, my birth, my biological mother uh, died at age 59. Not necessarily of alcoholism, but she just struggled with it all her life. I had a grandfather who was an alcoholic. I had uh, a brother that died of alcoholism 10 years ago. So that family, I had a cousin that called me, 75 years old. He's got 30, he's got 40 years of sobriety. He's been counseling drug and alcohol for 35 years. Oh, my years. God. He called me the new cousin. He said, well, new cousin? He said, I used to drink with your mother every day. He said, alcoholism is all through this family. And so there it was. There was there I just didn't was. know I had the monster in my head. And were they Irish? What were they? I, I think they were, well, certainly uh, in the middle of England, uh, a lot of it there with a, with a dash of Vikings, so it's there. Oh, cool. <laughs> it's there, yeah. Well, the Vikings, they were known for their... Uh... <laughs> Never developed a taste for mead. <laughs> but anyway, uh, there was I like the component. girly drinks. So I want the frozen daiquiri, um, you know, maybe with a... a, a uh, an umbrella on top. I never was that fancy. I just wanted something that put me asleep, put me out, and, and could think. Uh, well, see, my happy more. thing for drinking is to uh, get one of those, like a quart size, uh, uh, yeah. and 
Because that's as big as you can comfortably hold while you walk around the French Quarter. Yeah, yeah. See what's going on. Yeah, well, there was nothing very <laughs> and on a hot day or anything about just, you know, leave me alone, closing my door and getting in my sleep and drinking shard, bottles of Chardonnay. So All right. That was, that was it. Uh, but, yeah, there, you know, I, I, and I tell people, I tell, I tell patients when they're in I said, there's a monster in your head. Yeah. And you've got to figure out how to keep that thing at bay. I had a monster in my head that I didn't know about for 50 years. Like that two drank, wolves story? Have you heard that one? I have, and, and I just didn't know. I didn't know that I had that. And I don't know if it made a difference, Bruce. I probably would have convinced myself that I was immune to it. I kind of always felt that. Even back in the day, like there were two Bruces and they were fighting with each yeah, other. Yeah, no, you, you struggle with that a lot longer than I did in terms of the, <laughs> you know, the addiction, a lot longer. But uh, no, but the, what, what's interesting though, the, the similarity is, again, we have something called addiction. Mm-hmm. Yours expressed earlier. And I was high-functioning. I got two doctorates while yeah. I was, you know. Right. But, but it was that crisis point that I never put together. My dad dies, and then, boom, suddenly, you know. Yeah. It, it all just balled up in the next couple of years. Well, mine balled up over 53 years. And when it get, got, got going, it didn't take me long to begin drinking alcoholically and spend two and a half years. In the you know, they say office. the disease is progressive. And what that means is even if you quit, you still progress. And even if you never started, it's still, you, you had a 53-year-old liver. You know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's not a, you know, our 23, my 23-year-old students, they have 23-year-old livers. And a lot of them can drink very problematically. And then when they graduate, get married and get a job and they put a plug in the jug and they quit. Mm-hmm. But the program's for people like us that put the plug in the jug and take it back out. <laughs> and there's 15% of us in America that do that. Yeah. That's about what the percentage is. 15% of American adults. And more if you count the other addictions. Exactly, exactly. So, yeah, well, I'm, you and I are in the 15%, and I, don't, I just accept that. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean we're better or worse than anybody else. It's just that's, that's the particular constellation of genetic, environmental, intellect, volitional, and spiritual metrics that align to say, when you start drinking, Terry, it doesn't matter how old you are, <laughs> it's going to click and it's going to right. It's going to uh, start developing yeah. very quickly. You're probably lucky that you grew up Baptist and in a context where people weren't drinking. Well, that's, a, well, that's a great question to consider in the, in idea, in the, uh, the limelight of, of Providence, isn't it? I was raised, I, in fact, I, this past summer, I was, in my, I was in Lexington, Kentucky, where I was raised, and I was at my parents' graveside. And I could see uh, my dad's fa- uh, mom and dad's graves were over on the left, and my mom's uh, parents' graves were on the right. And I'm thinking, here are three good Southern Baptist families where alcohol was not allowed in the in, in the uh, family. If I had been exposed and drank alcoholically or drank to to excess as a teenager, I, I have no doubt that it would the disease would have started very early and right. altered so much of my life. So I was very grateful for that lineage of we're going to handle things with, with God and church, not, <laughs> not, uh, not rum and, and brandy or, 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 or bourbon, Kentucky bourbon. So yeah, I was very grateful. You're right there by it too. <laughs> I preached in a church one time, one of my early... Uh, revival experiences preaching in church where the uh, it was close to the wild turkey distillery and <laughs> a lot of these fine Baptists you know that's the jobs they had so they worked at the brewery well my I told you my dad kept Rustin dry 
Uh, and so there was this family, the Williams family, that moved into town, close to town. They were right across the parish line in a wet count, uh, parish, which we you know have in Louisiana, um, Jackson Parish. And they set up Wilmart, like a play on Walmart. <laughs> and uh, one day the mom had these little daiquiri packets that weren't selling. So she threw them in a blender with some alcohol and some ice and started selling those things. And she invented the frozen daiquiri. And uh, her son was a tech engineer, and he's designed any machine you see that... You know, I always look for the label, you know, in a restaurant if they have the frozen daiquiri machines. Frosty Factory, made in Ruston. <laughs> by all these Baptists. <laughs> <laughs> We saw an opportunity. I'm sure she tithed. <laughs> oh, well, I, 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 we, we interviewed her son, uh, Doff, who made the machines. Uh, he's just a, he's a rascal. He's great, but, you know, he's, you can tell he's uh, full of fun. Uh, he showed us this, he showed us through his, his, uh, uh, his, it's almost like an airport hangar, just the factory area where they built it. And then he had another, uh, warehouse just as big for his cars and his boats and he had his um, uh, Rolls Royce in there and I said so uh, do you have any great Poupon and he pulled some out and gave the <laughs> he'd been waiting for that question so anyway uh, when you get the frozen daiquiri it was made in Ruston and I think my dad should get a cut because if he hadn't kept Ruston uh, dry, they wouldn't have ever drawn any business out to Wilmart. Should be part of your estate. 10,000 thirsty tech students straightening those windy North Louisiana roads trying to get them some alcohol. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, people will find that stuff. Uh, it wasn't hard to find. I mean, my dad was the local Baptist preacher who kept the uh, Paris dry and my best friend lived a block away and his dad was the local bootlegger and uh, naturally I found my way down the street to uh, his, their house <laughs> a little exploration it, it's just you know if you've got that in you um, it's going to find a way out I, I see you've got a chapter on serenity to accept the things I cannot change and talking about control and that was such a big thing for me uh, what are your thoughts about our desire to, you know, run the world? Well, the, the, the way the book is outlined, I just devote a chapter to each phrase of the prayer. Right. So, God, so it's like a me meditation ser- almost. Grant me serenity to accept the things I cannot change, of course. is the, it's, I guess it's the third chapter in the book. My story is first chapter, reasonably happy. Yeah, that concept is the second so chapter. Skip down to the last line. So right, when you line. get to the, the familiar lines of serenity prayers, not really until chapter three. And the key there is, of course, acceptance, which is a, a very important idea that you see expressed in a lot of spiritualities for many years, and even, or, or I guess it would be more accurate to say philosophies. It's a Stoic idea, where yes. you accept. It doesn't mean agreement. It doesn't mean approval. It does mean you're going to stop becoming so enmeshed with a person or circumstance that that person or circumstance begins to define your happiness. The night Donald Trump won, the first, you know, 2016, I stayed awake all night long, so disturbed. 
and I uh, finally got a little nap at seven in the morning and then got back up a couple hours later and went to work. And I'm like, what is going on? You know, it's bad news, right? Uh, I didn't know that we'd have a million dead Americans, but I knew it wasn't going to be great. And um, I started doing the, the AA thing, which is, why are you so disturbed? And at some point I realized the things about his character that I find most offensive are the things that were in myself. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. You know, like, yeah. uh, oh, I don't like this about him. I don't like that about him. Quite apart from his politics, just, you know, there are these things that I've been, the, the other Bruce, you know, the one I've been fighting all these years. There is no problem that we deal with today, no character flaw that we deal with today that is not as old as Eden. Right, right. Right, we all have, we're just saddled with uh, problems with fear and self-centeredness and all that, and it expresses it in a variety of ways. So and while it certainly is, is legitimate to be you know, concerned about particular developments. But you can't be so disturbed that you stay awake all night you long. You can't be attached to it. I right. tell a story yes. in a book about a friend of mine who was, a, he had a, a television show for a number of years here in South Louisiana, it was quite popular. He talked. He was a newsman, but he talked about how he was very, very disturbed when Somali pirates a few years ago, you know, they were on the news mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. for getting these big ships. And he said, "I used to get so upset about that, and then I realized one day I can't do anything about Somali pirates." <laughs> so that really stayed Good. with me, and it illustrates the principle of detachment. Are what Somali pirates doing okay? Of course not. It's it's awful. It's terrible. What can you do about it? Absolutely not. Right. So there are so many things like that. And, of course, there are situations that are much closer to home where we think we can still guide the lives of our adult children. And when they don't <laughs> respond well, we really get upset and we there respond by trying to you know, come back at them in this way or that way or we do it with our spouses. We do it with people. And you cannot... People resist that kind of control. Yeah. And it's not healthy for us. It's something God doesn't do. So acceptance simply means I may not approve or agree with everything that you are or do, but I'm going to accept you. I'm not going to wrestle with you. It's such a practical, like uh, one of my early meetings, the great Dan W. was there. And uh, one of our, he was the old timer uh, in the group. And uh, he said, somebody cut me off in traffic the other day and I reached under my truck seat for a gun that I remembered I had stopped carrying 10 years ago. There's some battles that don't stay won. Yeah, right? So and, we're fighting them all the time. And, well, the, the, you know, nothing goes away entirely, but we don't follow that impulse all the way down. He didn't pull a gun out and wave it at the person. He didn't chase them down the interstate. He he had that initial reaction, and he let it go. Um, and that's part of what this teaches you, the, the 12 steps and this prayer. Um I got home to New Orleans a few weeks ago, and I'd been gone a couple of weeks. And I sat down in my glider rocker, which is my chair. I noticed it was like two inches over from where I had left it. You know, it was it had been moved, and then somebody's been eating crackers in my chair, and I, I was having a Goldilocks, you know, Papa Bear moment. I could feel the anger rising up, and I heard my own voice because I had a sponsee who was having real trouble with letting go of things the third step he couldn't do that third you know he kept 
trying to run the world, and I'd always say, you think that might be a third step problem, along with the resentment, there's something behind it. I heard myself saying, could this be a third step problem? Because the third step is turning control over to God. And in our group, we actually literally get on our knees and do the third step prayer. So oh, I did that, and I brushed my seat out, and I moved the chair back over, and I didn't make an ass out of myself stomping around the house and terrorizing the family. Uh, you know, I was able to get it before it hurt anybody. Here's the irony. Acceptance sounds like you're just giving up. It's not that no, at all. Acceptance no. is a very powerful spiritual dynamic. Yes. And ironically, acceptance is control. Yeah. We're trying to exercise control by changing people and circumstances around us which are going to resist being changed or are completely beyond our ability to change. Acceptance means, all right, I'm going to respect your sovereignty as an individual. I'm not going to try to change you. I'm going to accept the fact that this circumstance is totally beyond me. And then acceptance is control, not of something external to me, but of my internal <laughs> right. temperament. Which I mindset. never had control over. Like, I couldn't just turn that off by an act of will. I had to get the tools of the program. And if I hadn't been able to get it on a third step, the fourth step, you know, you start working through, okay, why am I resentful? What's this affecting? You know, and go through all that. And then if I'm still not, then... You know, there's a 24-hour meeting. I can get on and talk about how mad I am right now about crackers in my chair. And, uh, and <laughs> you know, so there are a lot of tools to apply to my life to help me deal with my own emotions that I never had before. And you experienced when you prayed and moved the chair back and didn't bark at anybody else. I was reasonably happy. Well, you experienced <laughs> serenity, right? You accept, yeah. By acceptance... It brought serenity. Yeah, it did. And that, in fact, is the reasonable happiness that the prayer aims at eventually. But here's how you get to it. Yeah. Acceptance is the first principle. You can't just... Did you ever watch that Seinfeld where uh, George's father uh, comes up with a plan to uh, have serenity? And he's just going to stop and say, serenity now. And uh, it's going to give him serenity. And, of course, as the program goes along, he gets more and more frustrations. And by the end, uh, he and George both are just screaming at the heavens, Serenity now! And they aren't getting any serenity at all because they just want serenity. They aren't doing any work to get there. Um, That's a step three issue. Yeah. I mean, to surrender everything over to God, this mysterious my surrender. Chair? Yeah, right. <laughs> to surrender everything and trust that he's going to take care of you. That he does care for you. That's that's hard to nail down. That's not mm -hmm. contractual stuff. That is growth in the spirit, which is always slow and subtle. And it's the, it's the mustard seed faith that ends up does grow, does grow it ends up do, do, growing into something that's quite significant. It took me not initially so long. long after I got to recovery to get to what they call some emotional sobriety. Mm -hmm. You know, just. Things would get under my skin, and now um, they still do, but I don't feel the compulsion to follow them all the way down, you know. Like, well, and, and we don't drink over it. That's uh -uh. the thing, you know. I, and I, Gosh, Bruce, it's going to, I don't mean to sound controversial, it's almost an advantage that we did something so draconian as drink and hurt ourselves or take a drug and hurt ourselves, where people are doing 
are doing the kind of control things, feeling the aggravation, but they're not getting drunk over it, and they think it's okay. They think they're doing okay. We had a dramatic impact in our lives by drugs or alcohol that when arrested, and then we get into a program that teaches us this emotional sobriety, we end up in a much better place than our non-drinking controlled people will never get to. Yeah, if I hadn't been an addict, I would probably just be another bitter old man. Yeah, you know, early in the program, <laughs> uh, after I got out of treatment, somebody gave me a little book, and in the flyleaf they had inscribed, Be Thankful to God for Your Alcoholism. And that that's, was staggering at first. I thought, mm-hmm. wait, I, I don't know if I'm there. I, I don't know I'm glad I'm sober, and I understand, you know, something about addiction. I'm thankful for this. I can realize that now, which is, again, the very biblical idea of suffering as a gift from God. Oh, you knew me as a young man. I was a bitter young man. <laughs> you were acerbic. <laughs> as a fair, <laughs> but delightfully so. <laughs> Oh, I was a. I still am a smartass. Our friend Benny Crockett figured out my superpower. He told me, uh, "You know what you do, Bruce? You figure out what bothers people, and then you do it." But I used to say, "Nobody can out jackass me." That's right, and I have to watch it in meetings, or especially online with my meeting friends, because they keep blocking me on Facebook. (laughs) Well, you found acceptance with me, my friend. Uh, well, I'll try not to jab you. I, uh, that's, uh, uh, I'll jab people that aren't in the program. I need the people in the program to uh, help me stay sober. So, uh, yeah. Um, but, yeah, the idea that, um, like my dad, he didn't have this. And he wound up in horrible depression and eventually committed suicide. Yeah. And I'm happier than I've ever been in my life. And I'm approaching the age that he was when... That happened. So, you know, you kind of look out like, am I going to have the heart attack the same year he had the heart attack? And I'm hoping I don't go off the rails the way he did, but I don't think I will because I've got some things that um, I can do, uh, people I can talk to about. And, you know, part of the problem for me at church, growing up in a preacher's family, it was clear from early on that. If my sister and I messed up big enough, um, my dad could lose his job. And that's his house, his health insurance, all of that at once. So, uh, you don't go to church and share your problems. You go to church to be fine. Yeah. And that was something I carried with me all the way through. That, how are you doing? I'm fine. Uh, yeah, that's one of the unique things about an AA meeting. Where else does that happen? <laughs> that a group of strangers can get together and honestly share about the problem they're having with crackers in the chair. Right. That is, is a minor problem, but those minor problems, those mosquitoes will get you worse than any bear. We handle bears better than we do mosquitoes. Oh, yeah. One of my favorite shares, and you know, we, we can be honest about not being okay. One of my favorite shares, because it's so me. Um, this woman came in. I just had a horrible morning. It was a noon meeting, horrible morning, and going terrible. And I decided, uh, okay, I'll make a gratitude list and, you know, make myself feel better. It was the worst gratitude list anybody's ever written. <laughs> I said, yes, yes, okay, there we go. Some truth, yeah. Uh, people come in and they talk about what's going on. Yeah, I just got out of jail for trying to shoot my old man, you know, that's... Uh, yeah. You don't hear that in a Baptist church. No, no, there's an authenticity in an AA meeting that 
churches other than the confession booth, I suppose, in the Catholic Church. We just mm-hmm. don't have those arenas of complete transparency and honesty. Right. And by doing so, find out that we're we're in league with a lot of other people, and we've got a God who does understand and take care of us. Now let's go into changing the things we can, because uh, I think you kind of got into it that the things we can change if we have the right program and health is ourself. That's it. It's the hula hoop principle I talk about in the, in the book. It's just you get to the point where you realize I can't change Bruce, I can't change my wife, and I can't change the driver that cut me off. I can't change. I can change me. I can change what's going on inside me. And so there, you know, there's some really powerful things that we can change in ourselves concerning perspective, a commitment to be forgiving, a commitment to trust. These are things that you can develop. You can cultivate mm-hmm. those things. They have a very powerful impact. Well, again, for me, and this goes back, of course, uh, to the Oxford group, our own process that we It was a Christian group, and they were trying to apply what they saw as... Uh, first century Christian principles. So, uh, but it, it works with any religion, any denomination, but these are tools for how do I change what's going on inside myself without me lashing out or uh, getting drunk or getting high or something. Um, like we've been going through, okay, what is, what's going on? If I can't figure it out, I need to talk to somebody, you know, and uh, there's just a process for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I never had that before. Uh, sharing it in community, you know, we were taught, uh, you know, just take it to God. Well, that's great, and that's absolutely vital. <coughs> it's just hard for me to hear God's voice when things are so loud between my ears. Oh, my God. And it helps me to talk it out with somebody else. Has your mind gotten quieter? Well, I say addiction is the loudest experience that you can possibly <laughs> endure. It's just a screaming ego, right? And you can't... Yeah. And God whispers, Bruce. I just believe that, God... Our, our the world shouts, egos scream, and God whispers. So you cannot hear God's whispers. When it's not just one voice. I had a committee meeting going on in my head. It was like uh, I was bouncing around. Uh, uh, it's the, uh, the the buzzers on the headboard. That's what a friend of mine calls them. Where you know, two a.m. You got the buzzers on the headboard. They're telling you about all your failures and the <laughs> doubts and regrets and reminding I, you of all that. I stuff. really like the twenty-four hour meeting at two a.m. when I'm trying to get out of my head and listen to what people are talking about for a little bit. I usually don't share because I'm trying to quiet down and go to sleep, but. Just to hear somebody's voice besides my own, um, yeah, that's it would be very helpful. And that's the thing, you know. I, it, it's something. Oh, good heavens! I, I can't say that I hear the voice of God a great deal, except through other people that God uses to speak to me. And so you become attuned to listening for those that 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 thread of wisdom, that thread of, of right. faith, the grace waves, and you're gonna find it. People, God will send those people to you. And when I can't tell if the voice inside my head is God or Terry, I can usually talk to you and you, you can say, sponsor. you know what? Yeah, Terry, I think, you know, maybe try this way. That might be the wisest place. Get a sponsor and then be a sponsor. I, I share stuff with my sponsees, like when I'm going. Like uh, the, my guy that had the third step stuff every time he called. It was just such a third step thing. And next time I talk to him, guess what, dude? I had my own third step crisis lesson. Yeah, uh, there were crackers in my chair, and uh, I was really, I was really getting pissed off. And there was a time when 
that rage would have just risen up and taken over. Sure. And to be able to intervene on yourself, you know, well, that's one of the things. Again, that's one of the things that you can change. It's just the power of pause, right? Just yeah. pressing the pause button to say, "All right, wait, just stop and try to reset," or stop, call somebody else, go to a meeting mm-hmm. instead of creating these terrible consequences. And one thing I heard change. early on was restart your day. You know, just do your morning stuff again at ten a.m. If it's going badly at ten a.m. and okay, we're going to recrank it up. Yeah. <laughs> Start the. 30th of uh, January over again. Yeah, yeah. And, and so it, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very accessible idea that in the heat of the moment, you don't really consider. And uh, we have the advantage of being in a program that's taught us these things. And if we implement them, and not always do we do it, but... Well, it's we, not going to be perfect. You know, know. But gosh, I'm grateful that the tools are there. If I remember to pick them up, they work. We're going to break in here and uh, finish our uh, discussion with Terry uh, next week. Uh, so nice to uh, talk to somebody that, um, you know, I knew from years ago, and uh, we've had uh, similar experiences down through the years, uh, especially uh, getting into recovery, and it was fun to talk about. It was rewarding to talk about that. Not always a fun topic, but I feel like I learned a lot, not only about Terry and about the how did he come to write about that, that particular text? Well, you know, it's the one that they um, begin most 12-step program meetings with, <clears throat> Serenity Prayer. And um, so after getting into recovery, then he, you know, saying the prayer over and over and got thinking about it. And he wanted to write about not just the parts that they say, but the whole thing, because it goes on for several more verses, if you will, um, uh, over what everybody already knows. So, yeah. So we want to thank Terry and, uh, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We certainly do want to thank Terry for coming in. Uh, if you haven't uh, gotten yourself a copy of that book, do get a copy of it. And it I'm sure it is a valuable resource. Uh, particularly, as Bruce said, those who are in recovery. Uh, probably, I would imagine, too, but, uh, people that are going through grief. Wouldn't you imagine, like, the death of a loved totally. one, like, like I'm going through right now? I mean... Uh, right, totally. You know, yeah, going through loss, of, you know, through death or divorce or whatever. I mean, it is a, you know, a, a resource, again, that I think would, uh, a person would find very helpful. Well, he spent a pretty good bit of time. I'm not sure if it was in the part we're broadcasting this week or next week, talking about loss of, uh, you know, beloved family members and how that has an effect on our, um, you know, our equilibrium even uh, going forward. Yeah, I mean, I, you, you, you've seen, and I'll, you know, let the listeners go here in a second, but you've seen the, the news that just came out, what, about a week or two ago about the fact that depressants, antidepressants, excuse me, don't work. It's, they work about like a sugar pill does. I think in what about eighty-five percent of the uh, of the time, or placebo, or something. Only about fifteen percent of the time do they really work or have any efficacy. Uh, and and I read in a related article to all that that people that are suffering grief, which can birth depression, but uh, it turns out that the effects of grief can mimic uh, the, a lot of the effects of a, of a brain trauma. Right. Oh yeah. You uh, get the fog. Like you know, after my father passed. Uh, I, 
the rest of that month was just like a haze, you know. When, when I look back and try to remember what was going on, it was just too overwhelming to really process, you know. It may be a, a way that the brain is trying to deal with it, you know, trying to right, yeah, kind of, kind of, um, I don't know, trying to adapt is the only way I can put it. Yeah, because it is such a, it is a trauma of a sort, uh, it particularly is. when you lose, you know, you lose a lose your dad, lose your mom, lose a lose a sibling, uh, can be really traumatic as well. Much less lose a spouse. Right, so, totally. So, so again, thank you, uh, Terry, for for joining us this week and for writing this book. Uh, we also want to thank all of you for listening in, and we hope that you'll join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.